1: Of all the festivals we hear, frae Hansel Monday till New Year, this few in Scotland held mere dear, for mirth I ween, or yet can boast o' better cheer than Halloween.
2: Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we delve into the darkest crevices of Scottish history to find you some truly gruesome tales. I'm Jenny, a witch of average power,
1: And I'm Annie, your archivist, and since it's October... (laughs) Of average power.
2: (laughs) Of great power, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) And since it's October, I thought we could have a look at spooky witchcraft in Scotland. Mm. October is a special month for us, because Halloween is important in Celtic mythology, with some folklorists suggesting that the Gallic Festival of Samhain, celebrated on Halloween, is actually the Celtic New Year.
2: Ah, well this is because the Celts used trees to delineate their calendar, which they split into two, the light half of the year and the dark. A tree with no leaves is often used to represent the Celtic New Year as we pass into the time of darkness. Our Halloween, which has its roots in the Celtic Samhain, is the point of the season when the leaves have died and the palette of autumn rules with rich browns, deep yellows and fiery reds. However, the shortening days not only cause the leaves to fall, but also trigger the development of resting buds. These buds are the final growth of the tree before it sleeps for the winter, its final burst of energy before the cold sets in. These buds are the start of the new cycle for the tree, and wait all winter so that when the days get longer, the tree is ready to regrow and come to life again. The resting buds are tiny but full of potential and promise. That's why Samhain is the Celtic New Year, because it's a time when the days are short and the nights are long and cold. But the trees, they remind us that the rich growth is promised for the future and the buds will again bloom in spring.
1: And this Samhain, as we enter into the darkness, is perfect for having a closer look at Scotland's darker history. Mm. A history of punishing people accused of dancing with the devil, cursing foes, practicing witchcraft, sorcery and necromancy
2: Ooh, And just a warning, this episode has descriptions of torture from the witch hunts and some of it is quite graphic so if you're alone at night and there's spooky noises, um, maybe save this episode for a sunny day
1: <laughs> And if you've got bands around maybe it's time to put them to bed Exactly let's begin by thinking about how the meaning of witchcraft itself has changed throughout time to help us better understand the Scottish witch hunts. There's quite a modern tendency to link different aspects of mythologies, romanticised legends, fairy tales and superstitions. We stitch them all together and this gives us an image of a witch who could be either a hag in the cottage in the woods or even a beautiful woman flying on a broomstick stealing children. But we need to unpick our modern ideas about witchcraft to think about what witchcraft meant to the people in Scotland before the mid-1700s, back when witchcraft was a crime punishable by death.
2: So it was a very different society that the Scots lived in back then. To them, witchcraft wasn't a fun historic myth, but a very real threat. Early modern Scotland was a very religious country with a rural economy, and this was key for its strong relationship with witchcraft. In these times, religious morals are entwined with the law, and witchcraft laws are implemented to protect people from the influence of the devil, and to punish those who have cast away their baptism. The church was suspicious of ungodly superstitions held in folklore, Communities were connected socially through the church. People would attend each week and be reminded of their morality shoulder to shoulder with their peers. Witchcraft was associated with the devil and his powers of evil and God-fearing people were told that it was an immoral sin to conduct witchcraft. They were being told to fear it and sorcery just as the church and monarchy feared witchcraft and sorcery themselves. But also... The rural economy means that people are dependent on nature, weather, and reliable seasons to make their living and survive. So when nature doesn't behave the way they wanted it to, it was easy to go looking for something or someone to blame.
1: Yes, witchcraft was a superstition and a very dangerous one at that. If you read the archives relating to people accused of witchcraft, you start seeing some very heartbreaking patterns Mm. because it's often the most vulnerable people who are accused of witchcraft in the first place.
2: Accusing someone of being a witch was also a way of explaining the unexplainable, like your cattle mysteriously falling ill, or a way of coping with grief. Sometimes people search for answers wherever they can and unfortunately, innocent lives would be lost along the way.
1: Right, so there's been a couple of witchcraft acts in Scotland. The first, in 1563, witches were sentenced and punished long before this, way back into the medieval periods. However, making a law against witchcraft transforms it from some kind of little folk superstition into quite a menacing threat. It's often forgotten that the people to blame for the witch hunts and the persecutions are the ruling elite, the monarchies who bring in the witchcraft acts, the magistrates, judges, clergy and local dignitaries that push convictions because of their paranoias and superstition. The moral compass of the nation at the time was led by this ruling class and the superstition and fear of witchcraft was inherited from them. People would accuse one another of witchcraft over land disputes, arguments, or because they stood out as being different, perhaps because of a physical or mental disability.
2: Okay, so I guess I always kind of saw it as the general population's easy way of getting rid of that neighbour you hate, but actually it was much more deeply ingrained in all levels of society than, you know, just petty arguments.
1: Well, yes, superstition was rife throughout the classes, But people could still be very petty with it. (laughs) In 1661, a Kirk session, a kind of small court made up of locals, warned John Nielsen three times against calling Margaret Allen a witch.
2: (laughs) To be fair, I did hear that Margaret Allen was a bit of a beehive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, beehive.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right, Jenny. Yes, Annie. So, before we get into some of the the deep dark witchery secrets, yep. I've got a really sneaky history tip hmm. to remind you.
0: <laughs> yes
1: yeah. Of I'm ready. one of the most witch crazed kings Scotland has ever had.
2: There were multiple.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is James the Sixth of Scotland, first of England. Mm-hmm. And
2: Some would call him the seventh.
1: <laughs> no one would call him the seventh, Jenny. <laughs> Absolutely no one. In fact, my heart actually stopped when you said
2: that. It looked like you'd seen a ghost or a witch. <laughs> Carry on.
1: Okay. So, James the sixth of Scotland, first of England, he loved to burn witches. Mm-hmm. How do you remember this? You remember this because. He was famous for wearing little red shoes. Yep. He had a big menagerie of animals, yep. including lions. Yep. He had a boyfriend who was a night guarder. Yep. Essentially, a Tin Man.
2: Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he burnt witches. So he's essentially the king responsible for the Wizard of Oz. And James the Sixth of Scotland, first of England. Yep. Is who Shakespeare wrote Macbeth for, ah. and included those three witches with powers over a king because James's superstitions were that witches could be controlling the kingdom somehow.
2: Well, also because he wrote a big book all about witches,
1: the demonology.
2: Yes, and then Shakespeare used this in writing Macbeth. Yes. So he kind of it was kind of like meta. He had a play written about a book that he wrote. About a king with the witches with him in it. That is some Wizard of Oz stuff, you're right. Oh, Dorothy. (laughs) Help (laughs) us all. Just tap my heels and get on with
1: this episode. The year is 1661. Britain had just returned Charles II to sit on the throne after the fall of the Commonwealth. And this restoration of the monarchy changes the Scottish justice system. This is because Cromwell had occupied Scotland, declaring Scotland part of his Commonwealth from 1652 to 1660. During this time, Cromwell installed English judges into Scotland to try and reform Scottish law.
2: Oh, I bet judges didn't enjoy that. Did they cast a bunch of spells on him? You know, maybe plagued by paper cuts. May your wig never sit straight, may be played by piles, hundreds of piles of
1: paperwork. They often wrote on vellum. Anyway.
2: that cut your fingers?
1: (laughs) Uh, No, Jenny. These judges had restraint in persecutions against witchcraft and didn't approve of savage torture techniques to force confessions that were much more common in Scotland than England. You would think that there would be relief amongst people during this period, but superstition was rife. The superstitions of people were like wee maggots eating away inside of them. For example, a minister, Robert Bailey, wrote in 1659 that... There has been a
2: great plague amongst the horses in all of Britain, to the death of many thousands of the best. What you inquire about the apparition in Galloway is not early known... An apparition? Wait, is this about a ghost?
1: Yes, he's talking about hunting. Please do read on. In Glenluce's parish, in John Campbell,
2: a Webster's house, for two or three years a spirit did cast stones, oft fire the house and cut the webs in the looms, yet never did any considerable harm. <laughs> the man was a good... Pious, resolute man, and never left his house for all. Sundry ministers of the presbytery did keep fasting and praying in the house without molestation. Sometimes the spirit spoke, and the minister, Mr John Scott, was so wise as to entertain large discourses with it. A sturdy beggar, who had been most wicked and avowed a thief, for which he was hanged at Dumfries, did oft lodge in that house. About his death it became more quiet, yet thereafter it became troublesome enough, but for the time is silent. There is much witchery up and down our land. The English may be too sparing to try it, yet they execute some.
1: So this minister is complaining that the English judges aren't hanging enough witches and relates this to the hauntings of good religious people. Hmm. He's perhaps also suggesting that the horse plague is some effect of witchcraft. However, the English judges are thrown out with the restoration of the monarchy. And with this comes a time of much bloodshed because people like Robert Bailey are worried that witches have been going about their business without getting prosecuted. There's a period of readjustment. The courts take some time to find their feet and it feels as though the laws of the land are suspended. But soon, Scottish judges are back in their courts, and they are going back to the old ways with witch trials. It started in April
2: 1661, in small villages just east of Edinburgh, Midlothian and East Lothian. From this time until mid-1662, at least 660 individuals were publicly accused of witchcraft, sorcery or some kind of diabolism in Scotland. Across the land, accusations of witchcraft were rife. From accusations of spells and devil worship causing death, illness, failed crops and fires. Now, the perfect recipe for a witch hunt required a few ingredients. The local people had to really believe in witchcraft. On top of this, the local authorities also had to support it, therefore firing and fueling the beliefs. There had to be legal procedure to deal with the accused. And local conditions had to be tense. From rumours to famine, whatever it was, people had to be stressed. Finally, there had to be a trigger, such as a sudden death or a terrible storm.
1: When all these conditions aligned, it resulted in many innocent people being tortured until they confessed to their illicit affairs with the devil and carrying out his work. And the witch hunts transformed the psyche of the country. For example, let me take you back to time, to 1662. Scotland is caught in this fervorous period of witch hunting. A small village sits in the northeast of Scotland, named Aldern. Aldern is a quiet, prosperous village, with rich, arable land and close to the port of Nairn for trading. But a dark shadow is coming to this village one that will bring about one of the most detailed and dramatic witchcraft confessions of all time. Isabel Gowdy is
2: part of a farming family. She is married to John Gilbert, a farm labourer. They live in a wee area a couple miles north of Aldern called Loch Loy, a beautiful area near the coast of the North Sea with a small sea loch in. It's a rich and fertile place. She had the life of many women in rural Scotland at the time, Helping out with farm jobs, tending to livestock, cooking, cleaning, sewing, weaving, making fires. Her days were long and her work was hard.
1: One of the shocking points of what is about to happen to Isabel Gaudy is that we don't know why she confessed to being a witch. It's possible that she was a victim of a well-known witch hunter who was travelling round Scotland trying to catch devilish deeds. Isabel couldn't read or write, but her confession is a work of imagination from a person who has a wonderfully detailed mind. If she had been born in a different time or place, she could have been a writer. Unfortunately, that is not how Isabel Guider's life played out. She made four confessions of witchcraft. Do you want to read some extracts from them? (laughs) Yes, I do. Okay, I'll abridge your introduction. At Aldern, the 13th day of April, year 1662, in the presence of the Ministers of the Gospel of Aldern, the Sheriff Depute of the Sheriffdom of Nairn and the Great and Good of the County, witness to the confession spoken forth of the mouth of Isabel Gowdy, spouse to John Gilbert in Loch Loy, As I was going between the towns of Drumdewin and Hedis, I met with the
2: devil and there covenanted in a manner with him. I promised to meet him in the night time in the Kirk of Alderaan.
1: So the record that I have states that witches often met within churchyards and consecrated ground for ritual and initiation in mockery of the church. And the first thing I did there that night I
2: denied my baptism and did put my hand to the crown of my head and to the sole of my foot and then renounce and betwixt my two hands over to the devil. Margaret Brodie in Aldern held me up to the devil to be baptised by him. He marked me in the shoulder and sucked out my blood at that mark and spouted it in his hand. Sprinkling it on my head, he said, I baptise thee, Janet, in my own name. My coven met in the courtyard of Nairn, and we raised an unchristened child out of its grave. We took the said child with the nails of our fingers and toes, pickles of its fortins of grain and blades of kale, and hacked them all very small.
1: Isabel is discussing spells made with the parts of dead bodies, which is apparently quite a common reference for incantations of the time. Mm-hmm. She goes on to describe spells of crops and grains of the land, which is symbolically very powerful for rural communities. She talks of flying away by saying the phrase, Horse and hattock into the devil's name. And it gets even more surreal.
2: I was in the downy hills and got more meat there from the queen of the fairies.
1: More meat than I could eat. Yes, she she eats a banquet with the queen of the fairies. And then she names all the people in her coven, men and women, and talks of their shape-shifting abilities. She makes a second confession on the 3rd day of May, 1662.
2: There is 13 persons each in the coven. us has a spirit to wait upon us when we please to call upon him.
1: So the number 13 was known as the Devil's Dozen in Scotland. And Isabel tells us the names of all of the spirits in her coven, such as... The Roaring Lion. And... Mac Hector. (laughs) And then she gets into some very strange spells... From summoning winds to cursing fish. Oh, not the fish. Not the fish. <laughs> Come <laughs> on, Isabel. Why, Isabel? Why not the fish? <laughs> what would David Attenborough think? <laughs> so she has a spell for transforming into a hare, which I quite like because I've seen hares living in barrows around Loch Loy. I shall go into and hare with sorrow
2: and sigh and meekle care. And I shall go in the devil's name. Aye, I, I will come home again. And instantly we start in a hair. And when we would be out of that shape, we will say, Hair, hair, God, send us care. I am in an hair's likeness just now, but I shall be a woman's likeness again now. You can kind of tell she was just riffing.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, her testimony goes into incredibly dark places, such as her third confession on the 15th of May, where she states, What troubles my conscience most is the killing of several persons
2: with the arrow which I got from the devil. The first woman that I killed was at the Plough Landis. I also killed one in the east of Murray at Candlemas Last.
1: Isabel goes on to describe the many kills of her coven, and a celebratory dinner that they had with the devil over the murders that they committed.
2: We eat this meat in the devil's name, with sorrow and sigh and meekle shame. We shall destroy house and hold, both sheep and note until the fold. In the devil's name, we pour in this water among this mould meal for long dining and ill heel. We put it into the fire, that is, may be burnt broth, stick and stour. It shall be burnt with all our will, as any stickle upon a kill.
1: So by anybody's standards, this confession is totally horrifying and shocking. It's a legal testimony which details great feats of disgusting behaviour, but also delves quite playfully into fairy realms and tales. It's a really strange case all round and we've only read small samples from it. I've left out some of the more explicit details of fornications with the devil. So
2: what I find interesting about um, her confessions is that she quite often talks about grains Um, and I was reading somewhere that she could have suffered from poisoning from a fungus that grew in the grains that she helped process. Back then they didn't understand ergot poisoning um, a condition that they called St Anthony's fire but actually St Anthony's fire to them was also kind of all-encompassing of sort of any demonic possession but Ergot also fell into that category because when you digest this, it can cause many symptoms that align with witchcraft, such as uncontrollable convulsions, hallucinations, mania, and psychosis. They can all be caused by this bacteria, and by reading some of this stuff, I mean, if nothing else, she had an incredibly active imagination. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the difficult thing is, we don't know whether she was suffering from poison or not. Mm. However, without this confession of witchcraft... She would be lucky to be remembered for anything at all. The most she would have been able to expect was a small gravestone in Aldern Kirkyard, which would have probably been worn and vanished and buried long.
2: Wow, rub it in some more, that she's basically a country nobody.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But she isn't, that's the whole point. Instead, she's one of the most famous cases of witchcraft confession in the whole world. It might have been an eccentric testimony from a poisoned mind. It might have been a cry for help. It might have been a creative monologue from the mind of an oppressed and ignored woman, voiceless in her small world in a wee rural Scottish village. Isabel Guidy would have been a survivor of the Battle of Alderne. She would have known death and hardship as much as the testimony is baffling and horrifying to read in equal quantities. I have to respect this woman for making such an incredible confession, pulling together so many different aspects of folk culture and superstitious belief into one tale. Isabel Gaudy's testimony is a massive influence, even on modern imaginations, for witches in films, books, fairy tales and folklore. So, what happened to her? So, this is where the mystery develops. We don't know what happens next. We have her story, but we don't know if this confession led to her being sentenced to death. The paper trail runs out. It's most likely that she was indeed executed as a witch, as her testimony is so condemning. However... She might have been able to tell her tale and yet survived because of leniencies in the court process. Her case could have been thrown out. I don't think we'll ever know. It just adds to the wonderful mystery of it
2: all, I suppose.
1: As strange as it sounds, there's a possibility that Isabel Guidey was pushed to her elaborate confession by one of Scotland's notorious witch-prickers. Ah yes,
2: the witch-prickers. It took more than just being accused of being a witch to be convicted. Once the accusation had been lodged, there was a whole investigation that had to be carried out. This varied from region to region, and it tended to be that the lower-level courts had much higher conviction rates.
1: yes. The early modern justice system in Scotland was quite complex and people could face trial on many different levels. Chances of survival were potluck based on which court a person was sent to. A person accused of witchcraft
2: could be trialled in the court of justiciary in Edinburgh or a circuit court or a local court. And this is really important because in the higher courts, which were run by professional lawyers, it was far less likely that you were going to receive a verdict that you were guilty of witchcraft. But the wee local courts were much more likely to convict.
1: Especially with the Kirk Sessions, which was a big group of the local elite the great and good of a parish, a kind of church parish committee Mm -hmm. who would use fear of witchcraft to punish people who they perceived as immoral. Yeah,
2: these folk were far more ruthless when it came to convicting witches. They would do all they could to convict someone they thought was immoral as a way of controlling the masses and exercising power. And that's where the witch prickers come in. These men, for it was a career for men only, claimed that they were able to identify witches and thus provide further evidence that the accused had been fraternising with the dark side. One of the most famous witch prickers was a man called John Kincaid. He was born near Edinburgh in the early 1600s and raised during highly superstitious times. There is no doubt that as a boy he would have witnessed a witch hunter too heard on the grapevine that the lady in the road had confessed to being a witch and could transform into a cat when the moon was right. And who knows, maybe seeing the public executions of accused witches inspired him to become a witch hunter. He could really and truly have believed that he was the hand of God, cleansing the land of evil and sin, and that he was truly working hard to do good and bring peace.
1: Or perhaps he had ulterior motives.
2: Yeah, he was totally in it for the money. (laughs) Old Johnny Boy was paid 20 shillings for every witch he identified. That's £100 in today's money. So you can see how being good at finding witches directly correlates to John's own best interests and bank account. He was heavily involved in the witch hunts of 1649-50 and 1661-62, He was likely responsible for the dramatic increase in executions during both of these witch hunts.
1: So can you go into some of his methods for finding these lucrative witches? Well, as a witch pricker, John would be
2: brought in to examine witches who had already been accused and captured. He would restrain them and strip them naked, often shaving their heads. This experience would have been completely humiliating and traumatising for the person accused of witchcraft, but their torment had just begun. He would then proceed in examining every inch of their body, looking closely for any strange marks or signs of the devil. It was believed that a witch would have a devil's mark, a spot with the devil's animal familiars, like a sleek black cat, or oh, a toad who would latch on and suckle blood, gaining energy before doing the devil's dark bidding. The pricker's job was to find this spot. How? by pricking almost every inch of the accused's body with a long, slender needle. If the accused did not feel pain or bleed from one particular prick spot, then it was a devil's mark, and they were guilty of witchcraft.
1: So this is steeped in deep layers of mythology and folklore that were brewing for centuries. Ideas on magic were combined with biblical descriptions of the devil and sinners. So, the collective understanding of witchcraft in the early modern period mixes a lot of legend and folk story to concoct a being that couldn't possibly be real. Celtic, Gallic, British and European mythologies often feature women with supernatural powers, and this feeds into the narratives and characteristics of witches, things like shape-shifting and the ability to communicate with animals, And fly.
2: Often the pricker would try every area there could, be there a mark there or
1: not. But to the modern mind, this really doesn't make sense because they're pricking all over the body of innocent people. These people obviously don't have devil's marks and all of the areas are going to be painful because, well, they're getting stabbed with a needle. Mm -hmm. So how did they ever find a witch and prove that there's a spot that felt no pain?
2: Well, in order to make a living, these pesky prickers had to find a devil's mark, and they used a variety of cunning tricks to do so. Upon his eventual arrest in 1667, John Kincaid admitted to being a fraud and to have employed deceptions and sleight of hand when looking for marks. Other prickers were found to have collections of clever little contraptions which they used to fool both the observer and the accused into thinking that the needle was going into the flesh, when in fact it was retracting into the handle of the device.
1: There's something really eerie and twisted about these prickers. While on one hand they may believe they are genuinely doing good and have the ability to rid the land of evil, We can assume that the vast majority of them would have been frauds, knowingly condemning innocent people to torture and death for monetary gain. And they sometimes used their authority to extort innocent people so that they wouldn't be accused of witchcraft. Mm. It's definitely a very dark profession. In a very dark time, and some
2: people just learned how to exploit these fears. Survival was hard and people would resort to whatever means they could, I guess. I mean, there were only 10 or so prickers active in the 17th century, so it wasn't a top career choice. But still, it it makes you think, like, what would draw someone to this kind of work? To be in this position of power and control and also knowing the outcome of your work, it's just really unsettling to think that people would happily make money off of doing this.
1: So, the individual pricker who may have got Isabel was not John Kincaid, but a woman pricker called Christian Cadwell. How could this be? Well, after seeing a witch pricker
2: at work one day, she realised that this career was right up her alley. Earlier I mentioned that pricking was a career for men only, but this didn't stop Christian pursuing her dreams. She devised a cunning plan to call herself John Dixon and disguise herself as a man in order to become a witch hunter. And it worked! John Dixon was employed to live on John Ennis's land in Murrayshire and hunt witches at a rate of six shillings a day for maintenance alone and six pounds for every positive witch ID. That was well over the daily average, so you can see why she was drawn to this, I suppose.
1: Intriguing. So she was active in the very area that Isabel and her coven were allegedly active. So it's actually quite likely that John Dixon, aka Christian Caldwell, was the pricker responsible for identifying Isabel. Yes, she was pricking all over the
2: north of Scotland and condemned at least six to death. Thankfully, it all came crashing down for her when she identified an important court worker as a witch. He was having none of this and had who he thought was John Dixon arrested for false accusations, torture and causing death of innocent people. To everyone's surprise, it was revealed that John was in fact cross-dressing and was a woman, and this was exposed during the trial. As punishment for her crimes, she was sent to a plantation in Barbados. And a weird twist to this is that on the same day she was banished, her last victim was burned. So, I don't know if that's, you know slow paperwork or vellum work but uh yeah just very inconvenient for that poor soul
1: that is a truly gruesome story it does seem like justice that many of the prickers were caught and exposed as frauds again like many women in the 17th century christian caldwell disappears from the records we don't know what happened to her after her trial
2: Although, who knows, maybe John Dixon has continued to live a happy and healthy life in Barbados. But probably not, Though, no. Probably died. Jingle?
1: By the end of the 17th century, we see a dramatic reduction in which accusations and persecutions... This is because of a general rise in scepticism that is spread through intense intellectual debate driven by scientific enlightenment. We see doctors and scientists start to apply knowledge to the
2: cases that they're seeing around them, bringing scientific logic to natural phenomena such as famines or plagues, and it all just became easier to explain due to more intense debate and understanding of the natural world.
1: Yes, superstition was replaced by science. People still held some light beliefs in witchcraft, but laws and trials developed to be more demanding and require significantly more evidence than confessions gained through torture. So what we see with the witch hunts is that natural disasters such as storms and plagues can be triggers that end up creating division and superstition within communities. So perhaps the witch hunts of our past can remind us that in tough times and hardships, we need to pull together as communities to look after one another instead of pointing fingers in blame.
2: Mm, Absolutely. But also, I feel like the meaning of witch hunts has changed in the modern world. Politicians often say that they're facing a media witch hunt if the press pick up a negative story on them. It's become this like go-to buzzword. However, what we see is the opposite of the witch hunts of olden days because it's the people in power who are claiming that they're being targeted but back then the people who were accused of witchcraft, mostly women, were the most vulnerable. More importantly though, people like Isabel Gowdy weren't guilty of witchy crimes that they were accused of because the crimes were this fantasy finger-pointing paranoid mass hysteria.
1: Yes! Uh, Witch hunt is now just this kind of umbrella term used by powerful people to try to discredit and deflect accusations which may very well be true That sounds like some witchcraft to me Annie so
2: who (laughs) knows? (laughs) Maybe it's a a mix of both
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely interesting within the current political climate anyway Real victims of witch hunts were mostly women Tortured into false confessions, whereas nowadays it's just a political jargon. We're tortured by having to listen to it all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it is whenever I hear the phrase witch hunt used by a politician, all I'm thinking is that they just need a really good prick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Put the the pins down, Jenny. Though we're glad to leave witch hunts behind us, At least there's one Scottish Samhain tradition that we're happy to keep on. And that is, of course, carving our turnips. Carving our nape's Jenny. Yes.
2: (laughs) It's a hard, it is significantly harder to carve a turnip than it is a pumpkin. Do you know how I know this? Because I watched you carve three. (laughs) (laughs) And I watched you sweat.
1: (laughs) There are a few things as hard as a turnip. You can't just scoop his insides out Mm with a spoon. You need to stab him multiple times with a knife. We wish you many turnips for Samhain. Thank you so much for listening to our spooky Samhain episode on Witches and Witchcraft in Scotland. Yes, if you enjoyed listening along, please give us a like and a share. And if you're feeling extra magical,
2: give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really, really helps us and keeps us going.
1: Thank you. That would be the perfect Halloween gift. We absolutely Love seeing our overviews on iTunes. It completely lights up our turnips. It does, which are looking a little harrowing. I'll I'll post a picture on our Instagram of the turnips. So if you're
2: on Instagram, give us a follow. If you're on Twitter, give us a like and same with Facebook. Alright. Sláinte-vá. Ooh, Watching our